Welcome to the Forbidden Forest, and this is Ro reading chapter 11 of the Blood Magic series, Hooked. January 23rd, 2008. Harry had lasted five days before he used again. He had started three fires at work the day before. Small ones, but a fire is a fire, really. He was feeling too dangerous to be in public again, so he shoved his hands deep in his jean pockets and arranged a quiet night in for himself. The fires, the outbursts of magic, they were bad, but Harry really couldn't handle what his thoughts were doing when they were told to cope without their newfound crutch. His nightmares came back with a terrifying insistence, Nagini tearing pieces of his flesh away from his legs as he tried desperately to scramble away from her, the Inferi pulling him beneath the surface of the lake as he screamed for Dumbledore to help him. He even had one where Ron had been imperious and kept trying to poison him until he finally got frustrated and shoved the sword of Gryffindor through his abdomen, telling Harry he never really liked him anyway. That last one had kept him up replaying their friendship over the years, looking for hints that they weren't anything but best mates. To be fair, when Harry was awake and at work, he wasn't doing much better. Aside from the outbursts of decidedly more insidious and violent magic, he jumped at every little noise. Ron, who was just back from paternity leave, was now in the habit for heckling him about how much coffee he spilled on himself. Harry, who didn't find this funny, was back to being annoyed at everyone for everything, and he even told Susan Bones to go fuck herself after she commented on his lack of aura-approved uniform. Decidedly unprofessional, that was. And, when he wasn't busy with the aforementioned, when he was quiet and still, he struggled to shake off the yearning, the longing for that sweet dip into his bath full of golden honey, the place where he could turn down the volume on everything and everyone and just feel, feel loved and held and safe. He had developed a crick in his neck from having to shake his head to clear his thoughts of it. That's how familiar this daydream had become. So here he was, apparating back to the stoop of Grimald Place, his pockets heavy and his thoughts light for the first time in what felt like forever. The burg adder on the door huffed and puffed at him, as usual, his tongue flicking as he berated Harry. The half-master of the house is always alone. Why is that? Harry paused for a second. Because it's easier to be alone than be with people who would never understand you he said, his voice dropping an octave as the truth of what he had said hit him. How rare it was that he told the truth these days. What a sad state he was in that it was his door knocker that coaxed it out of him. It had gotten into the habit of asking him existential philosophical questions whenever he came home, and Harry did his best to be honest with the little snake. Who else did he have, really? He pushed through the door, ignoring the Thestrals and their impatient pawing, and slammed it behind him, not wanting to think too hard on why things were the way they were. He was just trying to survive, like the years he had spent fighting Voldemort. He was just doing what needed to be done to keep everyone safe, right? He knew this wasn't good for him. Hell, it's not like he picked up jogging and eating celery. He wasn't an idiot but he'd always been the one to put himself on the line, the one who went headfirst alone into anything, 
because he knew that was how to keep his loved ones safe. Harry grumbled as he took the stairs two at a time, annoyed at himself that Hermione may have been onto something with all that talk of a hero complex or whatever. She wouldn't understand. Plus, she was busy now, busy with Rose, being a mom to someone else, someone new. She didn't have time for this. He didn't feel like thinking about it now, not when he was so close to the sticky, sweet relief he had procured for himself. He took his shoes off, sat at the end of the bed, and let all of his thoughts drift away. Harry was lucky most of the raids he was called in for happened early in the morning. He'd show up, run into the chaos, fake a few spells or feign an early injury, congratulate Ron with a slap on the back, and head back to the office by lunchtime. Other times, he declined going to the raid at all. By the early afternoon, he'd be shaky, and he'd feel his magic panting in his ear for another round. It was easy enough to shrink his kit and keep it hidden, lock himself in the bathroom, and give himself a taste to keep the edge off for the afternoon, at which point he would happily do mindless paperwork until his eyes bled. Sometimes, if he loaded enough, even a dopey smile sat placidly on his face. At night, he'd repeat his routine, saving his heavy doses for when he could lay back and exist in a state of absolute bliss, eyes rolling, mouth open, his body humming with the absolute pleasure of it all. He'd be gone from the world for hours at a time, blissful, at peace. He had stopped eating regularly weeks ago. The kitchen at Grimald Place held nothing but an old can of beans at the back of one of the thoroughly cobwebbed kitchen cupboards, and Sirius's room was slowly piling with detritus from his favorite haunt, an Indian restaurant by the name of Bunny Chow, a few blocks from his lonely townhouse. It was run by Indian Durbanites from South Africa, but Harry didn't really mind. All he cared about was being able to order their signature dish. A few years ago, Harry had spoken to Hermione about what he had described as a feeling of wanting to know more about his family, but he privately termed his chronic feelings of emptiness. He thought getting to know the Potter's history and culture might help him feel connected, less directionless and less alone. He knew they had come to London from Madras, now Chennai, two decades before independence, adapting to British life and culture with great ease, assimilating themselves into the old pure-blood families right as they were compiling the sacred 28, though they hadn't formally made the list. Harry had tried to read up on some of the magical traditions of Tamil Nadu, but he'd been lost in their intricacies and complexities, the characters and the names that felt incredibly foreign to him. Even some of the magical theory was based on things he had never heard before. He hadn't felt any of the connection he thought he might have had in those old texts, but he found something much better the next time he was out walking in London. He had spotted the Indian restaurant, Bunny Chow, and decided to give it a try. This, this was something Harry knew he loved the moment it had touched his tongue. The flavors, the spice, the heat of some of the dishes. He couldn't get enough. It became a habit for him, on nights where the ministry had kept him late and he couldn't even be bothered to microwave two-minute noodles. Now, though, it became part of his habit. A bunny chow, which was basically a hollowed-out loaf of bread full of curry, was the last food he could feel motivated to force himself to eat. He'd slink in, grab his takeaway, and get out, 
and that's only if he started feeling significant hunger pains. These days, the only cravings he felt were directed at the contents of a heated spoon, brown and soupy. This particular evening, no, morning, it had just passed 2 a.m., Harry stepped through the glass door and breathed in the tantalizing aroma that filled the shoebox-sized establishment. He ordered his chow and stood to wait, arms crossed, tapping his fingers against the sleeve of Sirius's leather jacket and trying not to think of how sore the crooks of his elbows felt. He leaned back against the wall with his eyes closed, sighing deeply. He knew he looked a wreck. He'd started wearing only long sleeves or keeping his jacket on as the insides of his arms were marked, and he was pretty sure one of the veins in his left was collapsed. He'd had been stupid to use his hands, then arms to begin with. He just hadn't thought much about how it might start to look. These days, Harry really wasn't making too many decisions with the future in mind. What future, really? At this moment, he was simply surviving. How long he could keep that up, he didn't know. His order was up, and he grabbed the bag and headed back, down, watching the street beneath his feet, wondering what the little adder would comment on now. supposed to be interviewing me i read the chapter oh okay um well then why don't we talk about harry's chronic feelings of emptiness do we have to (laughs) (laughs) i mean you don't have to do anything (laughs) well i think it's just kind of how i imagined him Mm. he's so directionless and he's got no anchor and he's got no you know, foundation on which he wants to build a life. Mm. I mean, he, it seems like he would feel empty. I would feel empty. Definitely. And so like now it also becomes obvious that we headcanon Harry as of Indian descent. Oh yeah. We forgot to mention that. Oh, well I've mentioned like briefly in passing that he has dark skin. Yeah. Yeah. But like much of the fandom, actually that's one of the things I loved um, about going into the fandom and what people have done mm. with sort of the the good representation. Yeah, definitely Hermione is black. Yeah, obviously we wrote her as black. Yeah, yeah. what well, you know? We, I don't think we've like mentioned that yet or like been explicit about it, but yeah, it's we almost do. <laughs> yeah. And um, one of the very first things that I heard about um, mm. as like how fandom had reimagined. The Potters was that they were Indian, and I absolutely loved it because there it opens the door to talk about so many different things, including the Dursleys' treatment of him yeah. having a hint of racism, and absolutely. not just about being this yeah. you know wizarding kid. Why they didn't make it into the Sacred Twenty Eights? Oh yeah, exactly. Mm. I mean, there's tons of of allusions and mm. you know references that you can draw. Um, plus, I think it's a more fair representation of British society. Yeah, I agree. Because um, I think the way J.K. wrote the books, it's easy to imagine it's just a bunch of white kids, mm-hmm. um, except Cho Chang, yeah. who has the most... And Dean Thomas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, like, Cho has the most, like, yeah. 
you know, obviously Asian name. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's it feels almost tokenistic, but yeah. um yeah, I thought it was really cool to imagine a more modern, more representative mm. sort of demographic from the UK. And this is also the first time we're sort of uh, hinting that the wizarding world and magic is a worldwide yeah. phenomenon. Like, mm. this isn't just Britain Britain and <laughs> British tradition and magic. Yeah. Like, there's obviously every part of the world has its own magical history and its own understanding of magic or the way they teach or the way that they engage with it exactly and the way it's influenced their traditions and history and Mm -hmm. everything yeah so i think you know the hogwarts universe is very britain centric yeah um and we move away from that later on we do we really try and explore that a little bit differently and this is sort of the first hint of that i think Mm -hmm. yeah and now also harry has pretty much like given up on the idea of a future at this point completely so his survival mode has kind of like shifted gears well it's it's really hard to imagine a future when the only thing you can think about is what am i going to be able to do in the next two hours yeah or the next morning or the next whatever yeah so the door at grimald place and the carvings what is that i don't know if it comes from anywhere but i always imagined okay I have a thing about, like, woods and, like, old wood and Mm. trees. I'm, like, of a huge sort of side special interest in them. And a lot of these old doors to old dwellings, like, even, you know, modern Mm. or even non-wizarding normal houses, sometimes there are pieces of wood that feel like they are soaked with the history that they must have come with. And so when I imagined the doorway to this very ancient wizarding dwelling, I imagined it, like, soaked in magic and tradition and to be, like, a living, breathing part of the house and the structure. And my imagining of that turned into thinking about the Ironwood recalling the forest that it's from and sort of, like letting the forest live on wherever it is. Because, like, an ironwood is such a dense and, and powerful wood. Like, so if you don't know, ironwoods are the trees where, like, in a lot of historical tradition, people would fail to cut them down. They would ruin their, their tools mm. trying to cut them down. So I imagine this, this staying power of this tree, like, mm. being able to recall the forest even when it's been carved into a door. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's how old, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. Generations old. Well, not just is the door generations old, but the tree itself would have had to have been thousands of years old mm-hmm. because ironwoods, to get that big, need to be that old. Yeah. Or hundreds of years, at yeah. least, but probably thousands. And so sort of it being able to recall the magic of being a tree somewhere mm-hmm. else yeah. and then sort of, like, transplanting that onto the house. Mm-hmm. And almost as it's... It becomes this surrogate gateway into a forest of its own. Yeah. 